Well, this morning is, uh, this is the last, the last uh, day of this year. Tomorrow is the beginning of a new year. And so I just thought, well, with the new year comes New Year's resolutions. And with New Year's resolutions, usually with people like us, comes a plan to read the Bible in 2024, right? And every time we, we start, not every time, but many times we, we start with our plan, you know, we get a few months in, all of a sudden we start teetering off, and then we're like, we'll start again next year. Uh, and so I just thought... This would be a good time to talk about what is in the Word of God, why it's so important that we read the Word of God consistently over and over again. It really doesn't matter what plan you pick, um, but that you do plan to read God's Word over and over and over and over again and make sure that you stick to the plan. But I think what is greater and what I want to talk about this morning is understanding what it is that you're planning on reading when you set out to read the Word of God this year. When you begin to grasp the magnificence and significance of the book that you have in your hand, well, then you will read it. And when you begin to understand the comprehensive story that is, has been revealed to us and how each individual part of the entire word of God fits together perfectly, then you will read it. And when the spirit of the Lord enlivens your soul and enlightens your mind to the truth that is held within the book, that you hold, and you recognize your dependence and your need for every word that he has given to us every day that you live, then you will desire this book more than anything else, and you will read it. You won't need someone to give you a plan. You won't need a buddy to keep you accountable. Not that those things aren't good. It's, it's, you do need a plan, and it's great to have someone to read the word of God with, But what is going to tie you and bind you to reading, submitting to, and obeying his word is understanding what it is that we hold in our hand. And so that's what I'm praying this message will be for each of us today. I'm hoping this will remind each of us uh, what it is that we have in the Bible, in God's word. I'm praying this will revive our desire to know his word, to submit to his word, to obey his word. And strengthen our resolve to be men of God or women of God, submissive and obedient to his word and to meditate on his word day and night. So I'm calling this the 2024 Bible reading plan. But what we're going to look at is all that God has prepared for us in his word, what God has revealed to us in his word, and all that God has required of us. So if you want to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 2, that's where we're going to start. Um, And then we're going to we're going to hop around, but 1 Corinthians 2 is really going to be the beginning of a lot of the things we're going to talk about. And in 1 Corinthians 2, I think we get a glimpse of Paul talking to the Corinthians and, and telling them what it is, what the, the message that he has brought to them, the message that he is writing in this letter currently given to them that we're reading. We're seeing the magnificence of this message, the significance of God's word and what he has revealed to us. And like I said, in this letter, he is speaking both of the words that he has given to them previously, the words that he is writing currently, uh, and Paul himself understands that these words are magnificent and significant. So if you read with me in 1 Corinthians 2, we're going to begin in verse 3. And in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 3, Paul says, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. And then he says, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, quoting from Isaiah, Things which eye has not seen, ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, 
all that God has prepared for those who love him. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, in the same way, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. And now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts and spiritual words. Paul understood that the message that he delivered to the Corinthians and the letter that he is currently writing to them were not his own thoughts. It was not his own account of what he interpreted God saying. It wasn't his own ideas. Not that there's no human element to the letter itself, but Paul understood because of what Christ had conveyed to him and what Christ said to the disciples when he was here on earth, he understood that this message that he is revealing or giving to the Corinthians was from God himself. He knew this because, again, Christ himself had said this, and all of the writers of the New Testament understood that they were not just recording their own words, but the words of God given to man. Just as the Old Testament prophets would have known that when they wrote, thus says the Lord, when Isaiah would say that, or when Jeremiah would say that, they understood that the Lord was, was conveying the message that they were writing. If we pause in 1 Corinthians 2 and we look back at the words of Christ in John 12, actually John 12 through 16, you see a lot of what Jesus revealed about the, the source of the truth that he has given to mankind. But in John 12, 49 through 50, Jesus himself indicated where his words originated from and talked about his own submission to God the Father in transmitting these words to mankind. Jesus says in, in John 12, 49 through 50, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. Christ, incarnate as a man like one of us on this earth, revealing what only God knows, still spoke only what God commanded him to speak. The, the word, the message that God intends for his children to hear during this present life. In John 16, in the upper room, as he has his 12 disciples, right before he goes to the cross, Jesus says a lot of amazing things. But one of the things he says in John 16 is he, he tells the, the, the disciples that he's about to send his spirit, and, it, and, and he tells the purpose of the spirit that he will send. And so Jesus, in defining the Spirit's work in continuing the transmission of God's word after his crucifixion and resurrection and ascension, says this. He says to his disciples, I have many more things to say to you. Now again, remember the timing and what's going to happen. He doesn't say many more things to them in this present life that he has, but he has many more things to say to them. He says, but you cannot bear them now. But when he... The spirit of truth comes, speaking of the Holy Spirit that he will send, which comes in Acts 2, that begins the, the filling of the spirit and the, the new covenant promises to the church when the church begins. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Now look at this. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Those are amazing, mind-blowing, 
passages that we could study for a long, long time and never really get down to the depths of all that, that Christ and the Spirit are conveying, and at the same time, and we can understand exactly what he means by this. The Son of God did not speak on his own initiative, but in submission to his Father, he spoke only what the Lord had told him. The Holy Spirit, whom he sent, did not speak on his own initiative, but only discloses what he hears from Christ, from the Father. The apostles who began the church and penned the New Testament did not write on their own initiative, but in submission to the Spirit recorded God's wisdom, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Wisdom imperceivable, wisdom indiscernible, and wisdom incomprehensible to man on our own. All that God prepared for those who love him. What we hold in our hand is all that God prepared for those who love him and all that God has revealed through his son, through his spirit, to the prophets given to us. It's an amazing book you hold in your hands. And Peter understood this. In 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21, Peter says, of God's word, of the word, that he is writing and of the word that has been given by the apostles, he says, we have the prophetic word made more sure. This is in context of him talking about the Mount of Transfiguration and him seeing the glory of Christ. So more sure than any vision, more sure than any dream or experience, more sure than visibly seeing the glory of Christ himself, Peter says, the word of God is more sure than, than anything that you will feel, see, or experience in this life. He says, and you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. But then he says this, know first of all that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. As you look at what God has said himself, Christ has said himself, and the apostles have said themselves in the word, we understand that what we have in our hands is unbelievable. This is God's word, God's will. And if we go back to 1 Corinthians 2, you see Paul say something very, very special here. Picking back up where we left off in verse 14. He says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised, spiritually tested, judged, evaluated, examined. They belong to those who are spiritual, who have God's spirit. But he says, he who is spiritual appraises all things, yet he himself is appraised by no one. And this is crazy. Look at this. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? This is a quote from Isaiah 40, 13 through 14. And the answer is nobody. The answer is God consults none of us. God doesn't need our wisdom. God doesn't need us to give others input about him. God, God is the one that understands and knows all things and he takes no instruction from mankind. He instructs, but look at what he says here. Who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him? And then Paul says this, but we have the mind of Christ. Does that not blow your mind? That God has revealed to us his will and his mind, his word, his ways, what he desires. And then he's sent his spirit to equip us to be able to comprehend what he has revealed to us accurately so that we can know him, so that we can believe in him, so that we can be sanctified as we submit to him and obey him. And all of these things are absolutely impossible for the natural man. The fact that you can comprehend his word is a gift of his wonderful grace. And the fact that he has revealed his word to us 
is one of the most supernatural, mind-blowing things. And because of our placement in history, the time that we were born, we have in a book the entire revelation of God given to mankind. That is unbelievable and such a blessing. Here in scripture, God reveals to us what only he knows. The mind, the will, the wisdom, the ways of God. And exactly what he has chosen to disclose to his children in this present time. From Genesis to Revelation, we have the mind of Christ, the will of God revealed to us through his son, by his spirit, by the prophets, all in submission to him, so that we can know the unknowable God, so that we can clearly understand his imperceivable will, so that we can be saved and sanctified by him. And that is all a gift of his wonderful grace. And as Moses said to the Israelites in the desert in Deuteronomy 8, 3, 3, and as Jesus used the same words to Satan in the wilderness as he was being tested, proving himself to be the second Adam, he says, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord is what you hold in your hand in that book. You're not going to hear an audible voice from God giving you more revelation. He has revealed to us in his word all that we need to know in this present life. And we are dependent upon it. And we cannot live without it. And Jesus Christ himself said it. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, Paul says to Timothy, all scripture... Genesis to Revelation is inspired, breathed out by God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. In Psalm 19, the Lord declares that his word is perfect. It means it's complete, it's blameless, it restores the soul, it is sure, which means it's trustworthy and faithful, and it makes us wise. It is right and righteous and fills us with joy. It is pure and enlightens our understanding, and it's clean, and it endures forever. It is true and altogether righteous, and it is more desirable than the purest gold and the sweetest honey, and we are warned, we are warned by his word, and we are rewarded in keeping his word. In Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible. It's the longest psalm in the Psalms. And the whole thing is about the greatness of God's revealed word that he's given to us. It's settled, it's complete, it's steadfast, it's established. It's God's word. And in Isaiah 40, verse 8, he tells us that his word will stand forever. What you see around you will pass away. The heavens, the earth, your family, your possessions, all that you are, all these things will be a loss. But what will not ever pass away is his word. And he's given us his word in a book. And we should want to know his word. Understanding the magnificence and the significance of this book will cause you to cherish it, treasure it, desire it, and submit to everything revealed within it. Which leads me to the next point, what he has revealed. Understanding the comprehensive story and how each piece fits together is beneficial for each and every one of us. I remember when this all like, came, I actually figured this out. I was in seminary, actually. I'd read the, book, uh, the Bible before. I'd read through it in like a year, had one of those like, year plans. But I was in seminary, I was in this beginning hermeneutics class, and, and the professor was like, you know, putting together the covenants, putting together, and I was like, it was crazy, it just all started coming together. I was like, oh my goodness, this is one story from beginning to end. You know, now you might be like, well, everybody knows that. I didn't know that. And I'm assuming there's probably people out there that don't know that. I was in seminary before I realized that. And so I'm sitting there in seminary going, I got to read it. I got to go home and read this thing. And so I committed to read the whole Bible like a book. I never thought about it that way. You know, you need a plan. We don't, we don't, get, we don't get reading plans for other books. If you sit down to read Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings, you're not like, let's read a chapter out of book one and then a chapter out of book four and then a chapter out of book seven, you know, and then go back to book one. We just read it, right? And, and I, I don't know, it, just, it was like this revelation. I need to read the Bible all the way through. And so I read it in one month. I mean, it was like crazy. 
I don't recommend it. I do recommend it, but I'm just saying, I don't know. <laughs> it's hard to do. But I read it in one month and it blew my mind. I was like, oh my goodness. For the first time, the whole thing, I was like, this is one thing. And, and then you start adding up all, you know, over 1,500 years and 40-something different writers. And it, it, is, it is a supernatural book that you hold in your hand. But the point is, is understanding the whole helps you to, as you read it, to go, I understand how this is all fitting together. And I would recommend reading through it quickly if you can. Uh, there's, there's good in both. You know, the slow read, you dig things out of that you would never have gotten if you just read it like a book. But reading it like a book, you see things that you would never see if you were just digging out Deuteronomy for five years. You know what I mean? So that's what I want to do in this point. All that God has revealed, we're going to look at the Word of God very briefly and, uh, and talk about the whole story. So the whole thing is about the kingdom of God and about the king who God has ordained before the foundation of the world to rule and reign forever, Jesus Christ. That's the book. So kingdom of God and the king, that's the main thing. The beginning and the end of the book starts with absolute perfection. Genesis 1 and 2, there's no sin. Everything's great. God's dwelling with man. Revelation 21, 22, no sin. Everything's great. God's dwelling with man. It's what's in the middle where you and I live that we have to pay a lot of attention to. From Revelation 3, I mean, sorry, Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, it's a revelation of God's work and will during this present age where sin exists and where Satan is the ruler of this world. And God's reveal, like, uh, um, continued revelation of his plan to send his king to rule and reign over his kingdom. The first prophecy of the trajectory of human existence and the salvation that God has already ordained before sin even existed is in Genesis 3.15, where he says that the sons of Satan and the sons of God will always be at war, but he's going to send the head crusher to come and crush Satan, end sin, end Satan. In Genesis 3.15, he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your seed, the, the sons of Satan and her seed, the sons of faith. He shall bruise you on the head and you will bruise him on the heel. It just means you'll crush his head. Um, or he will crush your head and you will crush his heel. The puzzle pieces then start putting together from that point forward about who Christ is and what he's going to do here. Cain is the beginning of Satan's kingdom. The people that, that, that um, you know, Cain was evil, murdered his brother, rebels against the Lord. Seth is the beginning of God's children who believe. Um, and we start following these genealogies. Genealogies in the Bible are super important because they just, they, you know, they show you the line leading up to Christ or leading to David who leads to Christ or from Abraham to reveal all these prophecies that God has made. But for 1,050 years, everybody's looking for the head crusher. But the head crusher never came. In Genesis 5, 28 to 29, uh, Lamech, uh, which was Noah's dad, when, no, uh, when his wife gives birth to Noah, says, this one, speaking of Noah, will give us rest from the work uh, and, and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground, which the Lord has cursed. So he's basically expressing belief in the fact that one is going to come to relieve us from the curse of sin, hoping that it's Noah. It wasn't Noah, uh, but God used Noah. Um, and for 600 more years after Noah was born, things got worse and worse and worse. After 1,650 years, God destroys the earth and every living thing on the earth because of our sin. And that's Genesis 6 through 9. So it's 1,600 years in the first nine chapters of the Bible. And then in Genesis 9, God reveals his first covenant. And God makes six important covenants throughout Scripture. And this is really important. Understanding these six covenants will help you to understand Scripture and provide clarity and understanding of the whole. So the Lord says, I mean, think about this. Everything, every time God says something, and he always does what he says. God doesn't have to swear and make oaths and covenants and promises that he'll do something. He does everything that he says he's going to do. But he makes these six covenants purposefully for you and for me to understand what he is doing. And they are very important biblically. The first covenant he makes in Genesis 8 and Genesis 9 is the Noahic covenant. And actually, this maybe will help you understand the covenants. Uh, I always told the kids when I taught this at the school here, just remember Nam Puddin, all right? You got Noahic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Priestly, Puddin, Davidic, and New, right? Nam Puddin. And you got all six covenants there. It'll help you remember it. <laughs> Hear that or you'll just remember Nam Puddin. <laughs> the Noahic covenant is in Genesis 6 through 9, really iterated in Genesis 9. But in Genesis 8, he says something about it. Abrahamic covenant uh, is first 
uttered in uh, Genesis 12, ratified in 15, uh, reiterated in Genesis 17, 26, 28, the Mosaic covenant in De- uh, Exodus 19 through 20 and Deuteronomy 4 and 5, the priestly covenant, which sometimes we overlook, but it's got some important significance in the millennial kingdom, is in Numbers 25, the Davidic covenant in 1 Samuel 7 and 1 Chronicles 17, and the new covenant in Jeremiah 30 through 33, mainly in 31, and Ezekiel 36. And all of those covenants are very, very important. And so as we read the book, if we read the revealed word of God, these covenants are very important uh, in what God is doing currently and planning on doing in the future. Uh, in the Noahic covenant, in Genesis 8, he says, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. So we're continuing to sin, but by God's wonderful oath and covenant, he hasn't flooded the earth 20 times since, right? And so by God's grace, we are still here. But he says there, while the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, all day uh, and day and night shall not cease. And then he says in Genesis 9, I myself establish my covenant with all living things that he will not flood the earth uh, with water again because of our sin. But what we understand there, we have the parameters of all the other covenants. The, the, the created order will not cease until everything that God has said occurs exactly like he has said it. And he refers back to this covenant with Noah or with all of creation many times as he reiterates his other covenants. So in other words, until the heavens and the earth pass away, everything that I've said and everything that I've sworn myself to do, I will do. Is it, so the Noahic covenant gives us that guarantee. From Genesis 10 to 11, 400 more years pass. Man continues to rebel. Nations and languages are established through God's judgment at Babel. Man spreads throughout the new earth, establishing all nations, beginning all histories of every people group and all false religions that occur on this planet. Um, have you ever thought about that? These unreached people groups that are out there? At one point, they were reached. They've just rebelled and ran from the Lord and the, the sins of their parents have culminated over thousands of years and you got people that are that are, that are lost. And so it reminds us, make sure you tell your children about Jesus Christ. They need to see him, know him, and believe in him. Not that you can make them believe, but your testimony, your words, and your example ought to be everything that they need in their childhood to go, yes, this is true, and he is God, and he is king. In Genesis 12, the Abrahamic covenant comes along. So 2,000 years have passed since creation, 2,000 years in the first 11 chapters, and God just chooses a man named Abram to begin revealing his plan for redemption of mankind and all of creation. He makes an unconditional, unilateral, everlasting covenant with Abram, and basically three parts to remember. It's the land, the nation, and all the earth will be blessed. So when you read the Bible and you see the land, the land, the land, the land, it's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. When it talks about Israel, the nation, Judah and Israel, all that, it's always talking about about the Abrahamic covenant. When he talks about all the earth being blessed by the one to come through Israel, he's talking about the Abrahamic covenant. And so as you read scripture, you'll start seeing those things. And you're like, that's what he swore to Abram. Um, he said he's going to give a, a land uh, to Abraham's descendants forever. He says he's going to make Abraham's descendants a nation that will last forever. And he, gives, uh, he says through his descendants, he will bless all of the earth. The Abrahamic covenant passes on to his children through Isaac and then through Jacob in Genesis 26 and 35. Jacob is renamed Israel. Israel goes uh, to Egypt. Jacob goes to Egypt during the famine, which is about, we're up to about 2,300 years since Adam at this point in the Bible. And Israel stays in Egypt for about 430 years. Well, he does stay in Egypt 430 years. God builds his nation, Israel, in Egypt during this time. 430 years later, God brings his nation that he has formed within Egypt out using a man named Moses and gives the land um, to the nation of Israel uh, using a man named Joshua, and this is Exodus through Joshua. In the middle of all of this, bringing them out, he makes another covenant with this nation that he's created, his people Israel, at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. Um, and, uh, and God makes this conditional covenant between him and the nation of Israel. God reveals his holiness to his people. He re- reveals the heinousness of sin. He provides them with his commands uh, and his will for their civil government, uh, for how they are to worship him, and for what their character and their conduct should be since, he, since they are his people and they 
belong to him, and they will be the one carrying his name. And he promises them uh, if they obey him, that he will bless them, they will prosper, and they will be able to remain in the land. If they disobey, there will be curses, destruction, and they will get kicked out of the land. Either way, God will be glorified, his name will be exalted, whatever Israel chooses to do. The new covenant, he gives a glimpse of the new covenant right there in Deuteronomy 29 and 30 and tells them, you won't obey, you will get kicked out of the land. Ezekiel 20 gives you a whole like uh, history of Israel from beginning to end. God had foreordained both his choosing of them, the rebellion of him and his regathering of them and blessing them, uh, which is all laid out in his word. The next thing that happens is the priestly covenant in Numbers 25, 7 through 13. Right before they take the land, the people of Israel do exactly what God just told them not to do. And, uh, and, and uh, Phineas, one of the priests, goes and, and acts on, uh, out, of, out of glory for the Lord, uh, uh, enacts God's vengeance on his own brethren, and God makes a unilateral, unconditional covenant with Phineas, promises him perpetual priesthood forever, which carries on into the millennial kingdom. There is no priests, there are no priests now, there's no temple or anything like that, but we know from Ezekiel 44 through 48 that there will be a temple in the millennial kingdom, and it is the sons of Zadok, which come from the line of Phinehas, that will be the priest in that time when Christ reigns on this earth, which again, if you just start looking into that stuff, you're like, this is mind-blowing. Israel takes the land, they immediately turn away from God. There's 300 years during the time of the judges where Israel rebels against the Lord and God delivers parts of Israel through the judges. 40 years later, God unites the entire nation under one king named David. And this is what the, the books of Samuel, First and Second Samuel are about. In Second Samuel, God makes the next covenant that's very important that reveals, like I said, not only the next piece of the plan of God, but more about this uh, king that will come. The Davidic covenant is in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. God made an unconditional, everlasting, eternal covenant with David that he would establish his throne and his kingdom and his house forever. All of God's promises are eternal. And he says um, uh, that, that uh, all this would come through one of David's descendants. Israel lasts as a unified nation under David and Solomon for a whopping 80 years. It wasn't that long. And then they're divided. They exist a divided nation, the northern kingdom of Israel with the 10 tribes and the southern nation of Judah consisting of two tribes for about 400 years. This is all found in 2 Samuel, uh, both kings and the chronicles. The northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by Assyria in 722 BC. The southern kingdom of Judah is conquered by Babylon in 586 BC, which ends Israel. And as the judgment of God is being poured out on Israel and the curses were, were transpired right before their eyes, God started sending prophets to the nation of Israel. These prophets not only called them to repentance and obedience and submission to God, but they also revealed with much more clarity exactly what God was doing currently at that time and what he would do in the future. Because everything visibly made it look like God cannot fulfill the covenants that he swore to Abraham, to Phineas, and to David. Because it just looked impossible. And so God began to reveal what he would do in the future, what he would do for and through the nation of Israel. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets reveal more about the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ than everything in the New Testament combined and reveal so much of what he will do for his people, Israel, during that time. As the nation of Judah is being wiped off the face of the planet, God promises to make a new covenant with Israel and with Judah that is different than the Mosaic covenant. And in this new covenant, he promises to gather Israel back as a nation. In the new covenant, he promises to bring them back to their land. In the new covenant, he promises to cleanse them from sin, to give them a new heart and a new spirit, to put his own spirit within them and to cause them to know him, to cause them to love him, to cause them to obey him and to never forsake him again. And it is a wonderful, wonderful promise of God. And the fulfillment of all the other covenants are attached to the fulfillment of the new covenant. In fact, Jeremiah 33 is one of the coolest chapters in the Bible because it pulls them all together right as he wipes them out. As God makes it almost impossible or from our vantage point impossible for these things to happen, he says, I'm still doing it. I'm just not doing it the way that any of you thought it was gonna happen. In the middle 
of revealing the new covenant, God reiterates his plan to fulfill the Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic covenants and that the Noahic covenant was the guarantee that all this would take place. So flip there, Jeremiah 33. It's way back in the back. You gotta go the other way. Jeremiah 33, 14 through 26. I'm gonna go ahead and start reading it as you get there. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 26. The Lord says, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word that I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And and he begins to talk about the Davidic covenant. In those days, at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. He shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem will dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. This is as David David's line is, is being wiped out and there is a curse pronounced on Jeconiah making it impossible for his son to sit on the throne. God set up impossible circumstances that can only be possible through the God-man Jesus Christ being the one to come through David, being adopted by Joseph. So it's, again, you read the word and you're like, this is unbelievable. And the Levitical priest shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings. There's the priestly covenant. Again, the temple is being wiped out. And, 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 and all of that is done away with. To burn grain offerings and to prepare sacrifices continually. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant for the day and my covenant for the night, referring back to the Noahic covenant, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. So in other words, that's impossible. The priestly covenant has to happen. The Davidic covenant has to happen because the Noahic covenant has established that all order will be there until I finish fulfilling all my words. As the host of heaven cannot be counted and the sand of the sea cannot be measured, so I, God says, will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, have you not observed what this people have spoken? Saying, the two families which the Lord chose, he has rejected them. Sounds like a lot of people in the church today, right? God's rejected Israel. Well, he can't. Paul says it in Romans 9 through 11. Jeremiah saying it right here. Even though everyone's saying he's rejected them, thus they may despise my people no longer. Um, uh, no longer are they as a nation in their sight. Thus says the Lord, if my covenant for the day and night stand not and the fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, which he has, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and, my, and David, my servant, not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There's the Abrahamic covenant. But I will restore their fortunes and I will have mercy on them. God declares it very clearly that he is going to do all that he has sworn to do. For Israel... For, for, for the, the, the children of Abraham, for David, for the, 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 the line of Phineas with the priestly covenant, God will do all that he said. Between 538 and 445 BC, remnants of Israel returned after being uh, uh, dispersed to Babylon. A portion of the land was re-inhabited in Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, but this remnant is completely destroyed in 70 AD by Rome. They're scattered into the wilderness of the world and that's where they're at now. The nation of Israel is reestablished by the UN in 1948. However, the majority of Israel is currently scattered throughout the world. The nation as a whole is still in rebellion against God, and they're in active rejection of their Lord and their King, the Messiah, the Christ, Jesus. Now, many Israelites are being saved through the body of Christ the church right now, but that is not what God said in the Old Testament nor is it what he talks about in the New Testament. The New Testament is the beginning of the end. It's the birth of the one, Jesus Christ. Born around 4 BC, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. He, was proclaimed, he proclaimed himself to be the one that God had sworn would come all the way from Genesis 3.15 up through the entire Old Testament. He proved himself to be the one. The gospels themselves declare that this is the awaited Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that we've been looking for since Genesis. 
Then the death, the resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus Christ proves that he is the only one that has power over sin, power over death, and could possibly be the one to reign on David's throne, to bring about the new covenant, to bring about the Abrahamic covenant. Acts records him, Christ, sending his spirit, starting the church. Romans through Revelation 3 are letters and messages instructing the church during this present age. That's what those letters are for. They're for the church. Revelation 6 through 19 declares the future judgment of the world, the future repentance and redemption of the nation of Israel, the future return of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Revelation 20 lays out the 1,000 year reign of Jesus Christ on earth, which was foretold in the prophets. And, and the details are given in the prophets. And during this time, he will bring about the completion of the fulfillment of all the covenants of God. It's during the millennial reign of Christ that the Abrahamic, priestly, Davidic, and new covenants are f- completed and fulfilled in a way that never have they been completed before. They've, they've begun, but they have not been fulfilled. Details of this fulfillment and the conditions of the earth during this time are most clearly found in the Psalms and Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the 12 minor prophets. If those things, if you're like, I want to know more about the reign of Christ, go read the Old Testament. At the end of the thousand-year kingdom, there's a final rebellion. The Antichrist and Satan are cast into the eternal lake of fire. There's a great white throne of judgment. All humanity from Cain until the end, whose name is not written in the Lamb's book of life, are cast into the eternal lake of fire, along with death and sin and hell and all things that come with sin. In Revelation 21 and 22, there's a new heaven and a new earth, which we know very little about because it's not needed in this present age. That's the word. That's what you've been given. That's what God has revealed. I don't need that. (laughs) Just go read it. I didn't make that up. Uh, Romans 9 through 11 gives clarity on what the Lord is doing during this present time. If you are confused, he says, this is what I'm doing during the church age. Just trust me and hang tight. He says in Romans 11, 25 to 26, I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So all of us Gentiles, don't get arrogant and think God's gotten rid of Israel and you and me, we're the chosen ones. Yes, we are being brought into the new covenant. We're being grafted in. We're a part of these promises. And man, that is a blessing. But here's what he's doing. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. The church will finish its work. The Gentiles will come in. And so all Israel will be saved. It's mind-blowing. Just as it is written, quoting Isaiah 59 and quoting Isaiah 27, the deliverer, now we know, Jesus Christ, will come from Zion he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them, Israel, when I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. From the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable, which means they cannot be recalled, repealed, revoked, annulled, or changed. God will do all that he has sworn to do. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so these also have now been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all, under, all in disobedience, so that he may show mercy to all. Praise the Lord. And then he ends Romans 11 by saying this, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Isn't that funny? That's exactly what he said in 1 Corinthians 2. That's exactly what Isaiah talked about back in the day. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul's like, that is it. Let it be. 1 Corinthians 2, if you go back and look at it, when he said the same thing, who has known the mind of the Lord, who will instruct him? We have the mind of Christ. Again, the book you hold in your hand is an unbelievable gift of his grace. It's a miraculous thing that we hold the word of God in his hands. Remember what Second Peter said, we have the prophetic word made more sure, more sure than any vision, miracle, or dream, which we will do well to pay attention to it. In Deuteronomy 8, again, man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, which leads us to the last point. All that God has required when we read 
in the New Testament. What's our role? What has God required? One of the first things I thought of was what he says in Matthew 16, 24 to 27, of all disciples. He said to his disciples, speaking to the, to, to the 12 that were there, but to all of us, he says, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever wishes, or I'm sorry, for, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will repay every man according to his deeds. That's a warning. We need Christ, both for eternal life and for this present life. How often do we remember our need for salvation but neglect his command for sanctification? He says, all that he has made holy, he will make holy. All those he has called to be holy and made holy through the blood of his son, he will progressively make us more and more holy in this life. The proof of our faith in Christ and our love for Christ is submission to him and to his commands. And we can't submit to commands we don't know. We can't obey the word that we don't read, right? It's not rocket science. We have to read his word. We have to believe his word. We have to submit to his word and obey his word and follow his word to follow him. He says in John 14, 21 to 24, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. You got his commandments, right? If you don't, we got free copies. I'm sure Shane can give you one in the pastor reception right afterwards. If you have his commandments and you keep his commandments, that's evidence of your love for him. He says, and, and this one will be loved by my father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but it's the father who sent me. Again, he only spoke what the father told him. He did not speak on his own initiative. You know what God says through his son revealed to you in scripture, God's will and God's word? If we love him, we will obey. If we love him, we will submit to his word. If we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If we love him, we will love his word. And when we neglect his word, and when we don't submit to his word, and we don't obey his word, all we're revealing is our lack of love for him. Before I came to the Lord, I thought I was in the Lord. I thought I belonged to him. I never read his word. I didn't obey his word. And it was this, I don't know if it's this passage exactly, but it was a pastor preaching this kind of message that our love for him is manifest by, it is proven by our obedience and submission to him. And I remember that cutting me to the heart because I knew, or I thought I knew that I loved him, but I knew I was not obeying him, submitting to him, or following him. I don't know where you're at right now, but examine your heart Look at your life. What is keeping you from full submission and obedience to Christ? What is keeping you from treasuring and loving his word, reading it every day? Not because you're forced to, not because of a reading plan, but because you can't not, because it's everything to us. We must read his word. We must know his word. We must meditate on his word, and we must keep his word. Psalm 1, 1 through 2 says, How blessed is the man that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But you know what his delight is? His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So what is your plan moving forward? What are the obstacles in your way? And what are you going to resolve to do about it? I can tell you, by experience, when I neglect the word, it's always because of something else that I love more than him. Whether that's just up here or it's something around me, there's something that I love more than Christ. And when I see a neglect of his word in my life, the first thing that he has trained me to do is to sniff out what, what is it right now that is so important that I cannot be with him and I, I'm, I'm putting something else before him. It helps us discern our heart and our idols. So be honest with yourself. Ask yourself, this is what I do. Ask yourself these questions. 
If you watch yourself straying from, not submitting to, or neglecting the word, what is more important to you than submission and obedience to God's revealed will that he predestined for his children? Is it just the the current events around you? Is it the news, your job, your family, your friends, your hobbies, your habits, your health, or maybe your secrets? What is more important to you than submission and obedience to God's revealed word? It might be your opinions or your beliefs, your desires, your dreams or ambitions, your own satisfaction, your reputation, or your lusts. What is more important to you than submitting in obedience to God's revealed word? Is it comfort, ease, security, control, honor, pride, justice? What means more to us than him? Only you and Christ know what stands between you and wholehearted submission and obedience and devotion to him. He has given us everything we need to believe in him, to submit to him, to imitate him. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit to comprehend. He's given us his spirit to convict us. His spirit sanctifies us. He's given you the body of Christ, the church. You're sitting amongst children of God, saints that have been reborn and and, and filled with the spirit of God, eternal beings all around you that know God and know Christ. And all these people are here for your admonition, edification, and sanctification. So the question we all need to ask ourselves is what must we forsake for him? And then make your Bible reading plan. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you have revealed to us in your word all things that we need in this life for salvation, for sanctification, uh, for, for us to, to know you and to love you and to follow you. These are all the things that you predestined for your children and that you revealed through your son, through your spirit, and through the prophets, and you've given to us. And Father, I pray that we would examine our own hearts and see what is it in our life that causes us to to not be blown away by your word, to not see it as more desirable than anything in this life. What is it in our life that causes us to neglect your word and neglect obedience to you? What is it in our life that's so important that this becomes secondary? And Father, help us to repent, to get up, and to resolve that we will be men and women of your word, that we will submit to you and everything you've revealed and obey you because we love you. We want to be like Christ. We want to imitate God, our Father, as his beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and laid down his life for us. Help us to love the brethren. Help us to show grace and mercy to one another as we submit to your truths and your commands. Help that to be to, to, to show its fruit and its blessing in the body of Christ here at Faith Community Church and then wherever we go, in our homes and in the workplace and, and in our neighborhoods. Father, we pray, help us to be faithful to you, faithful men and women of God, faithful men and women of your word, and use us for your glory and your desires here on earth, and then bring us home where we can stand face to face with you and we can see the word of God, Jesus Christ. Lord, we long for that day, but until that day, give us strength. Help us to be faithful. We pray all this in your heavenly name. Amen.